Why don't you take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We are in verse 8. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead in sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. Well, tonight we're returning here to our study in the book of uh, Romans, and I really feel bad about uh, this uh, study because it has been so disjointed. Uh, the last time we were here in Romans 6 was like six or seven weeks ago. But I'm going to try to do my best to get us back into the flow of the book. And then as we move forward, I don't anticipate too many disruptions here uh, coming up, Lord willing. Now, the last time we were together, we worked through verses 5 through 7. But again, since it's been so long, we've got to kind of go back to the top of the chapter and kind of pick up a little bit of the flow of the, of the teaching and, and then work our way through the text again to get us down to, to verse uh, 8. Now, you'll remember that the great theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that it's righteousness that is what needed, is needed for the sinner uh, to be uh, reinstated with God. And again, all are sinners, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So all men are in a dire condition before God, before a holy God. All men are headed for eternal punishment. But God in his great mercy and great grace offers to men a full, free pardon from their condemnation, from, from their sin, through the substitutionary, propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a righteousness that God himself provides that men desperately need that is received by, by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works. By what God does in uh, declaring the believing sinner righteous. That's the good news of the gospel, what God has done. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justification or to justify is a legal term uh, meaning to declare righteous. Justification is the transaction which the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to or imputed to the sinner's account. And again, it's all the gift of God's grace. We don't justify ourselves. We can't do anything to justify ourselves. It's something that God alone does. Something that God does. God declares the sinner righteous solely, again, based on the merits of Christ and his righteousness. Christ's righteousness as our substitute. He takes upon himself all of our sin. He stands in our place. He bears our punishment. And he is credited with our sin. And for the believing sinner... And what the theologians call the great exchange, we are credited with his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He takes all of our sin and punishment in exchange, we are given his righteousness. So justification changes the judicial standing of the sinner before God from guilty to not guilty and positively righteous. From guilty to not guilty and now positively righteous, again, all because of what God has done through Christ. And once God makes that declaration, it is uh, immediate, it is irrevocable, meaning that it lasts forever, it lasts through all eternity. Justification can't be lost, it can't be reversed, because what God has declared stands forever, permanently entered into the records of the Supreme Court of Heaven, if you will, which can never be overturned. Now, starting in chapter 5, Paul began to work out the results of justification 
by faith alone. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification guarantees our final redemption, our ultimate salvation. The fact that one day we will be glorified. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So justification, it not only secures our eternal destiny, from which nothing can ever remove us, or nothing can ever separate us from that love that God has for us through Christ. Listen, justification breaks our union with the past. Justification breaks our union with Adam, who we once were apart from Christ. Justification breaks our union with Adam, and justification solidifies our union with the person of Jesus Christ. Now again, remember back in chapter 5, in verses 12 through 21, Paul laid out all those wonderful truths about what Adam did and what Christ did. What Adam did to take us into destruction, and the point of that passage was that Christ has done so much more. Adam took us into death and destruction, yes, but Christ has done so much more for us. Uh, Adam brought, brought us to the reign of sin and death, but Christ brought us into the reign of life and the reign of grace. So again, justification breaks our relationship with Adam, and it brings us into full union with Christ. So Adam, again, brought sin and death and judgment and condemnation, but Christ brings life. Christ brings pardon. Christ brings the gift of righteousness. And again, now in Christ, we are forgiven, justified. In Christ, forgiven, justified, we are no longer who we once were. That is a tremendously key point to remember. In Christ, forgiven and justified, we are no longer who we once were. So the main theme of chapter 5 was the assurance of our salvation because of the reality and the finality of our justification. And Paul's going to pick up that theme again in chapter 8 and then conclude it at the end of chapter 8. But what he does when he turns his attention to chapter 6 is he begins to deal with the practical working out of justification. We would call that the doctrine of sanctification. That God not only declares the forgiven sinner just, God's work of redemption actually produces righteousness in the believer. God's work of redemption actually produces righteousness in the believer. It's the doctrine of sanctification. So again, the first ten verses of chapter 6, Paul really is beginning his lesson on sanctification. He is arguing that in spite of the sinner's past, all whom God has justified will experience personal holiness. Now let me make this short statement that kind of adds to that reality. The very short statement is that Christ changes people's lives. Amen? Christ Jesus, the Christ of the Bible, the only true Christ, literally saves his people from their sins. He doesn't leave them in their sins. He saves them from their sins. Once you're justified, you are no longer who you were previously. Once you're justified, all things are different. So chapter 6 of the book of Romans is just a tremendously encouraging, wonderful, freeing, liberating uh, section of Scripture. And it all comes to the sinner by grace alone. It is for the believer, just like Lincoln, it, it, it's the emancipation proclamation. It's the setting of the sinner free from who he was. It's a realization of truth of what God has done. Now again, last time we worked our way up to verse 8, but I got a review, and we just got to go through this on a little bit of highlights. I won't go into too much depth, but a little bit. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul's anticipating a major objection to his teaching. He is teaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, period. And the typical religious Jew of the day would not be able to handle that. He could not comprehend pleasing God apart from works. He couldn't comprehend uh, pleasing God without strict adherence to the Mosaic and rabbinic law. That's what they saw as godliness. So they would see that if you taught salvation is solely by grace, then some people would say, well, okay, then I have license, right? If sin brings God's grace, 
then let's do evil that more grace may come, which, of course, is utter error and utter folly. Paul says, look, for the true believer, for the one who has genuinely been justified, it's impossible for that person to continue to live in a habitual pattern of sin. It's impossible for them to live in a habitual lifestyle marked by sin. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? So the supporting fact that the believer cannot live a life marked by habitual pattern of sin is found in the statement, we died to sin. Now listen, it's not very complicated. Once you're dead, you're dead. Profound, right? Once you're dead, you're dead. Once you're dead, you're done with this world. Once you're dead, you're done with this realm. It's over. We died to sin. Right? In Christ, justified. That means that we're free from the reign of sin. Free from the rule of sin. Free from the realm of sinning always. And that's because of our justification. Because of our justification, sin no longer has a hold on our life. We have been transferred into another realm. We are under the power and dominion, the rule. We are no longer under the power, dominion, and rule of sin. But we're now under the dominion, the power, the influence of grace. So justified individuals have died to sin. It's a fact of history. It's a past completed action. So again, the question is, when did that happen? When did that happen? It's found again in the doctrine of our union with Christ. And that's what Paul's going to start to expound here in verses 3 through 11. Now again, remember back in chapter 5, verse 18. It says, So then as through one transgression there results in condemnation to all men, even through one act of righteousness there results results in justification of life to all men. As through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So our union with Adam brought us condemnation because of his disobedience, but our union with Christ brings us justification because of his obedience. Now again, as I've said previously in our study, this understanding of our union with Christ is a vital doctrine. It's a doctrine that we have to understand. And Paul is going to begin to unfold this truth. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now remember when we went through it, I told you this is a dry verse. He's not talking about water baptism. He's, He's using a physical analogy to teach a spiritual truth. Again, we just did baptisms a couple weeks ago. So what happens when a person is baptized into water? Well, you saw in front of you, right? They're altered. They went from their state change, right? Their their union with the water transformed them. They went from a state of dryness into another state, a state of wetness. And when you're baptized with water by immersion, that means you are surrounded by the water. You're completely altered by the water, changed by the water. That's the analogy that he is teaching here, that Paul is teaching. He's not teaching uh, baptism for repentance. Because baptism is a sign already of an inward change. Baptism happens to somebody who has already come to faith in Christ. Baptism doesn't save anybody, only Christ saves. So again, Paul is using a physical analogy to teach a spiritual truth of our identity with Christ. That we are now permanently forever immersed into Christ. We are permanently made one with Christ. So if you've been immersed into Christ, then you've been transformed by him completely, thoroughly by him. So again, Paul's speaking of our union with Christ, that we're transformed, altered, completely changed, thoroughly changed, through and throughout changed. We're in a new environment, a new relationship. We're in a new realm. Now Paul says something very similar over in the book of Galatians, Galatians 2 and 20, but he doesn't use the word baptism there, but he teaches the same truth. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. The old me is gone, completely gone. The new me is now in the Christ, so much into Christ, I don't know where he ends and I begin. That's what he's saying. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by, the faith, in, I live by faith in the Son of God who to love me and delivered me, right? We, again, once we were in Adam, 
when we are apart when we are apart from our justification, but now in our union with Christ, immersed completely into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life. His life is our life. So the question comes like this are we to continue in sin? Or so when this question comes, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? The answer is, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us, all of us who are justified, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus? So again, if you're justified, you're declared not guilty and positively righteous, united with Christ, therefore you cannot be united with sin. United with Christ, you can't be united with sin. You are, in, you are no longer indifferent to holiness. Right? Because once you, the ones who have been baptized into Christ, united with him, are changed. And again, united with Christ, we receive all the benefits from him because of our union with him. In a sense, what happened to him, I said this before, in a sense, what happened to him happened to us. As a result of his work, we share in his life. As a result of what he has done for us in our union with him, we are participators in the benefits that come from him to us. So salvation is not just about having your sins forgiven. Salvation is about being transferred into a different realm, from the realm of sin and death, being transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Because in him, we are completely again altered, transformed by him, thoroughly from one state to another, again from the state in the realm of sin and death into the state of grace and life. Do you not know that all of you have been baptized, or all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? Again, it's a historical reality. It's a historical fact that looks back to our union with him that began there at the cross, when he who knew no sin became sin for us. When he died, we who by faith believe in him, we died with him. The old us died with him when he died. Here's the reason, verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Again, when Christ died, we died. When Christ raised from the dead, we were raised with him because of our union with him, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. I mean, it is just honestly tremendous truth. I get to a certain extent, perhaps it's a little bit difficult to fully understand, but Paul is emphasizing the impossibility of us to continue to live the way we did before we were saved. That's an utter impossibility. Because by believing upon Christ in a salvific way, as Lord and Savior, a divine miracle has taken place in our lives. And again, one by the person of Christ some 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross that allowed us to participate in his death to be buried with him. And death, again, burial is, is the final proof of death, the final death certificate, if you, if you will, that you have, you have died. Christ died. Again, the sinless one comes. He pays the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. He defeats death. Because of our justification, Romans 4 and 25, he's raised from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead, Paul says, enables us to be those who walk in newness of life. Now listen to the great theologian Charles uh, Hodge. He says, There can be no participation in Christ's life without participation in his death, and we cannot enjoy the benefits of, of his death unless we are partakers of the power of his life. We must be reconciled to God in order to be holy, and we cannot be reconciled without therefore or thereby becoming holy. Right? There can be no participation in Christ's life without participation in his death. We cannot enjoy the benefits of his death unless we're partakers of the power of his life. We must be reconciled to God in order to be holy, and we cannot be reconciled without us thereby becoming holy. What happens to him happens to us. He's changed us. So our union with Christ uh, marks the end uh, of our being under the realm, and again, the reign and the rule of sin. Our relationship with that realm is over. Now, I've quoted it to you a number of times during this study, and it's going to be quoted again because I think it's helpful, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in, in, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away, and behold, new things have come. So the man who's justified, the man who is in Christ, is dead to sin. He now lives in a different realm. He's now under a different power, different rule, different authority. He's a different person. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come new creature in Christ. 
So when Paul asks the question, it's really a rhetorical question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? The answer, of course, is you can't. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You can't be dead to sin and still living in sin. Right? You can't be dead to sin and still living in sin. One modern commentator says this, those who simply add Christ to their sinful lifestyles are not saved. And I pause right there and say that's where most people are. For them, Christ is nothing more than just some icon on a shelf, an idol on a shelf, another deity that they, they serve because they want their life to go a little bit better. So I've tried all these other ones that don't work. I'll try the Jesus idol and see if that works. Right? Those who simply add Christ to their sinful lifestyles are not saved. When a person comes to Christ, he shares in his death and becomes a different person. Believers die in Christ to live in Christ. And we have been justified that we might be sanctified. Those are inseparable realities. That's a tremendously encouraging statement. So Paul is teaching, look, instead of justification by faith alone, leaving room for a lifestyle of sin abounding, he says the reality is the exact opposite. For those who are truly justified by faith alone, by grace alone, and the person of Jesus Christ, it doesn't lead to lawlessness. In fact, it leads to holiness. It leads to holiness. Because not only does our union with Christ bring an end to the dominion of sin and death into the believer's life, but our union with Christ brings to us a new life. A new life, a life of obedience, a a life marked by good works. Good works not for our salvation, but good works because of our salvation. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. Again, why did was Christ raised from the dead? Again, verse 4 continues, in order that, or so we too, might walk in newness of life. Right? Uh, that we might walk, in order that. Now, it, it's, it's not the, the should of, uh, uh, it's not the might of should, but it's the might of ability. The might of ability, Right? Not the should of obligation, but the might of ability. It's the should of divine accomplishment, or the might of divine accomplishment, accomplishment, in order that we might. We can't do this because this is what God has done. Due to what God has done, he has brought forth in us newness of life. Now, newness of life means new in terms of quality or new kind. It's not new in the sense of referring to something old or a, a, a point of time. He's saying sin so much characterized our life in Adam... So now, in Christ, righteousness characterizes our new life in Christ. And again, you see that principle taught all through the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. We are said, of believers with new spiritual life, we are said to receive a new heart, Ezekiel 36, a new spirit, Ezekiel 18, a new song, Psalm 40, a new name, Revelation 2. We are called new creations, 2 Corinthians 5, new creatures, Galatians 6, We are called a new self. We have a new self, Ephesians 4. All through Scripture, you see that principle. One author says this, Righteousness now becomes the pattern for the believers as opposed to the past, which was characterized by habitual sin. Sin may manifest itself from time to time in the believer's life, but it will not characterize his new lifestyle. That's important. Sin may indeed raise its head. Sin may indeed... Uh, uh, manifest itself in, in a believer's life from time to time, but it will not characterize his new lifestyle. So sin no longer reigns in the life of the believer. The believer now walks daily, moment by moment, step by step, in a new life, in newness of life. So when a person comes by faith, genuinely comes to salvific faith in the person of Jesus Christ, his life is changed, transformed. His life used to be marked by sin and death, but now in Christ it's marked by obedience, righteousness, and holiness. It's a life of holiness. Again, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, behold, new things come. New, fresh things. We used to be evil in Adam, but now in Christ we are righteous because he is righteous. Now listen, if there's no transformation of life, if there's no holiness, if your life is not radically marked by a change of righteousness, then you have no legitimate claim to salvation. I didn't say you have to be perfect, right? But if your life is not radically changed, marked by righteousness, there's not a transformation of life to holiness, then you have no legitimate claim to salvation. 
Because the bent of your life now in Christ must be distinguished by righteousness. Now, sadly, there are a whole lot of people in the confessing church, whatever, again, that is. I don't know how to define evangelicalism. I don't know how to define uh, the church today because everybody's using terms that don't belong to them. Right? There's many people in the professing church who claim they believe in Christ, but they've been deceived because their life lacks the holiness of Christ. And I say this all the time. I believe, I believe, I believe. Okay, well, the demons believe too in James 2. And I ask people, well, if you believe, has it changed your life? Okay, I'll just ask you. If you believe really upon Jesus, have you ever shaken? You ever shook? I mean, that's what the demons do. They shudder. They're in terror. They really believe in the person of Jesus Christ. They know who he is. And most people can't say that. Again, most people, I don't write this stuff, but most people are going to find themselves one day in the category of Matthew chapter 7 when the Lord himself is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, let me give you the list of things I've done. And he's going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. We don't have that intimate relationship. Whatever you thought you knew is not me because I changed people's lives. So again, there's sadly a lot of people in the modern church who claim to believe in Christ who've been deceived because their lives lack the holiness of Christ. Listen, that he both demands and provides. He demands and provides. How? Because we're changed from the inside out through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. If if your life is not marked, I didn't say perfection, if your life is not marked by holiness, righteousness, a desire to move in that direction, you don't have a claim to genuine salvation. If your life lacks holiness of Christ, that he both provides and demands because of the person and indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, then you're not who you claim to be. And you need to know that now before it's too late, before you stand before him in judgment and go, well, Lord, I, and he goes, I never knew you. Now's the time to make those changes. Right? Now, once we're justified, again, this is just not a legal court proceeding. It is that, but once we're justified, it's not just a forensic declaration, it's a reality. Once we're justified, it's a reality. It's a result of a transformed life. We're no longer who we once were in Adam. We're now new creations in Christ. Continually, progressively, more and more, each and every day, looking like Christ. Therefore, if we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we might walk, so we too might walk in newness of life, verse 5, for if, and it really should be since, that's what he's saying, since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be like, also be, uh, be also in the likeness of his resurrection. He's again, he's just confirming that our union with Christ in his death brings new life. And inevitably, if it brings new life, it brings a new way of living. The old life died, and therefore a new one, excuse me, necessarily has been born. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, at the top of verse 6, knowing this, Paul says, look, everybody ought to know this. Everybody ought to know this, right? This should be evident. This should be known to everybody. That once you're saved, once you come to Christ, you're no longer who you once were. That your old self was crucified with him. Now, what does old self mean? Or uh, the King James, New King James says, our old man. It doesn't uh, mean our old self in the sense of our carnal nature, or our flesh with its lusts and affections. It doesn't mean old in the sense of former, like in chronological age. The word old refers to something uh, that is absolutely wore out, completely wore out, useless, fit for the scrap heap. In the entire context of the passage, going back into chapter 5, verse 12, our old self or our old man refers to who we were in Adam. Somebody once said it like this, the unregenerate in Adam man. That's what he's talking about. The unregenerate in Adam man. Our old self, our old man, who we used to be in Adam, who we once were, past tense, but we are now no longer. So for the Christian, he was once in Adam, but now he's in Christ. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So what does that mean, our old self was crucified? Well, listen, you know, crucified means you have been murdered, killed, dead, no longer alive. Our old man, our old self, was crucified with him. So again, who we were in Adam is dead. He no longer exists. He was crucified with Christ. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The old man is the man I was in Adam, my old humanity, born in sin, born under condemnation, 
the man that sinned with Adam and therefore reaped all the consequences of Adam's sin. The man who is under the wrath and condemnation of God, that man died with Christ. He was crucified with him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why, he asks, because I am no longer that man. I'm a new man in Christ. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, and he is the head of a new race, and I am a member of this new race. That is a tremendous statement. Right? I'm no longer that man. I'm a new man in Christ. Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, and uh, head of a new race, and I'm now part of that race. So again, Paul says, look, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, might be doesn't carry the idea of a possibility or maybe. It's just a way of stating something that already exists, an existing fact. So when Christ died for sin on the cross, for our sin on the cross, our old self was crucified with him. That's a statement of historical reality. Therefore, if that's true of you, then you've got to stop living like that old man is still around because he's not, he's dead. And we bury people who are dead, we put them in the ground, and we don't pull them back up. That's disgusting. On a spiritual level, it's the same truth. Why in the world are we pulling them back up? He's dead. Leave him in the dirt, right? Leave him in the dirt, right? That truth has to be lived out. Stop living like the old man's still around. He's not, he's dead. You have to understand who you are in Christ. Our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin. Very literally, literally, it's our body that sins, our physical body. It's sin taking possession of our members, sin using the members of our body as instruments of evil and unrighteousness. Now, Paul's not saying that the physical body is evil, that matter is somehow evil. It's not what he's teaching. But when he uses that phrase, our body of sin, it's probably best understood as a synonym for the flesh. What's the flesh? Well, it's that whole system of corrupt principles, propensities, lusts, passions, which we have since the fall possessed in man's nature. It's our unredeemed humanness, right? We are saved, but the flesh still is a factor in our life, right? Our old self, who we once were, was crucified, that our body of sin might be done away with. And that little phrase, done away with, means means destroyed, literally annihilated, to render inoperative or invalid, making something ineffective by removing its power and control. So Paul says again, verse 6, knowing this, that in Christ, our old self, who we were in Adam, was crucified with him. He's now dead, right? In order that our body of sin, that those instruments of unrighteousness, might be done away with or rendered inoperative, removed from that position of power and control that was once over us. Again, that's a pretty encouraging statement. It's a reality. And, And the more we mature, the more that we grow in Christ, the more we become aware of sin in our life because the flesh still tries to raise its head up and still tries to encourage us into corruption. But for the first time in our life, in Christ, we actually have the ability to say no. No to sin. And yes to righteousness. Uh, Again, you've heard the analogy before, you know, um, uh, Spurgeon used to say, you, you can't stop a, a bird from lighting in your hair, you know, lighting, landing in your hair, but you can stop him from building a nest, right? So sometimes thoughts, you know, Ephesians 6 calls them uh, arrows, the, you know, the, the, the demon, uh, Satan and his arrows. A thought comes and you go, where in the world did that come from? Something says, I should go do this thing. And you go, well, I can either do it or I can not do it. Before you came to faith in Christ, all you could do is do it. All you could do is sin. For the first time in Christ, again, get that thing out of my hair. You're not building a nest there, and I'm not thinking about that, okay? You have the ability to say yes to righteousness and no to sin, right? Now, we're not going to be sinless until we're glorified, but most certainly in Christ, we should be sinning less, loving holiness more, right? Loving righteousness more because of God's kindness to us in Christ and the fact that he has changed us. Now look at the end of verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So here it is again. Paul, Paul is not teaching that we are no longer capable of committing sin, but we're no longer under the tyranny of sin. 
We're no longer slaves to sin. The reason, verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. So again, our old life, who we were in Adam, was crucified. Therefore, that ends the enslavement to the things past. Because now we're redeemed, we're justified in Christ. In our union with Christ, right? For he who has died is freed from sin. Again, it's just another tremendously encouraging statement. We have a new life, a new life in Christ, a new owner, a new master. Now again, Satan and our flesh may try to entice us back into our old sinful ways. Our our flesh may temporarily draw our attention away from our new life, but both sin and Satan are powerless to draw us back into who we once were because we're completely different in Christ. Sin and Satan cannot draw us back into who we once were because who we once were no longer exists. Now, the great thing about this portion of Scripture, it's positional truth. Therefore, it's reality. You'll notice there's nothing in here that Paul says that is asking us to do anything. He's just stating fact after fact. He's just declaring reality after reality. You know, in the Greek, you have the indicative and the imperative. The imperative is the mood of command. Go do this, go do that. There aren't any in here. It doesn't come until chapter 12. These are just all indicatives. This is just one declaration after another declaration of spiritual truth, spiritual realities that we need to know and understand. Now, again, it doesn't mean there's not a battle. There is a battle. We still struggle with the flesh, right? We still struggle with the flesh and its uh, corrupted inclinations. And again, Paul's going to speak to that issue in chapter 7 when he cries out in Romans uh, 724, this wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, right? He goes, why do I keep doing these things that I don't want to do? And I keep finding this battle within me. Yeah, he'll address that in chapter 7. The answer, of course, is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, right? He takes us back to the person of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not our battle. It's the battle that Christ has won. Yeah, we're to work out and to live our sanctification, live out the reality of who we are, but you have to understand who you are first. Now, again, our flesh... Again, this unredeemed humanist that remains within us until we're glorified, until we're freed from these bodies of death. But again, in Christ, the tyranny, the penalty of sin has been broken. Sin's potential uh, has not been fully removed. It will be one day. And Paul's going to give, in fact, starting in verse 12, he's going to give practical uh, application, practical steps to mortify or to kill, to put to death our flesh. How to live holy lives how to live as redeemed individuals in unredeemed flesh, uh, 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 redeemed individuals who still have a, a, a live in weak vessels regarding sin. Now again, one day sin's going to be dealt with, right? It'll be finally done away with. When we're glorified, life's going to be a battle. Until then, the first step in understanding the freedom that God has granted to us through Christ is to understand who we are in Christ, and in Christ we've been freed from sin no longer slaves to sin. So again, the first step in freedom from sin's bondage is to realize that you have been set free. Christ has set you free. There's a very definite victory over the old man at Calvary's cross because of our union with Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Our whole position, our whole, whole nature is new. And again, that's just tremendous truth piled on top of one another. And we need to realize that. Realize that. We need to put it into practice. Again, go back to the, uh, the Civil War era. You know, when Lincoln emancipated the slaves by declaration of the president, he freed them. The moment he signed his name to that piece of paper, it was over. They were free. The first step for them to realize that freedom was to act like freed men. Not to go back to work the next day and not to go back and I'm a slave. No, you're freed. And the same thing in the spiritual realm. Christ has set us free because the old us is dead. Now, the Christian life has been called by some theologians, and I think it's helpful, the already not yet. The already not yet kind of experience. So that means that the Christian life, uh, the believer has a sinless position and a sinless identity with Christ. For our truest position, we are completely and finally dead to sin, freed from sin, no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, we're already fully forgiven, declared righteous, already delivered from the power and dominion of sin. Already our body of sin has been done away with, but we are not yet perfect in our daily 
earthly experience. Right? We, we, we see something different working out itself in the members of our body. Again, Paul, Paul, Paul has it. He, he understands that. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already attained to it or already become perfect, but I press on to that. Let me lay hold of, for which Christ is also laid, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, I press on. I'm not there yet. I, I'm still fighting, still fighting this flesh. I'm still fighting the, 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 the fight of faith to keep moving forward in my daily walk, in my progressive sanctification, in my looking more and more like the Savior. I'm not already there yet, right? That's that kind of living. I, I'm in this battle. But again, this is who we are in Christ. And I think this next statement is so vitally important. Uh, we need to let God define who we are. We need to let God define who we are, not our past. Not the past 20 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years of your life define you. That old you is gone. The past experience of your life, those are over. Right? God has dealt with that in Christ. We need to put that man in the grave, throw dirt on his face, and leave him there, not resurrect him. We are not recovering fill-in-the-blanks. We are new creatures in Christ. That old life has to be forgotten because he's dead. We, again, do not dig up dead people. We leave them. It's over. We forget them. They're gone. They're done with this realm. And that's what we have to do on a spiritual level because this is emancipation. So again, the Christian life is an indeed already not yet kind of a life. But what do we do? We press on that we may lay hold of for which we were also laid hold of by Christ. That's perfection. It'll come. Already, not yet. It'll come someday. Now verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now these three verses are essentially just a summary of what Paul just said concerning the believer's death to sin and life to Christ, new life in Christ. Verse 8 again, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. Right? So it's not again, it's not if, it really is since. Since we've died with Christ... Since we've died to the realm of the power and dominion of sin, since we no longer live in that territory, we no longer live in the territory of sin, we are dead to sin, we believe that we shall also live with him. Right? Because of our union with Christ. And the fact that we have died to sin. And when he died, we died to sin. Right? When he died, we died with him. Therefore, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, when he says we shall also live with him, obviously at some point we got it. I, I read the end of the book. We're going to go and be with him in eternity, right? In the eternal presence of God. But in the context, that's not what he's talking about. Because the context is talking about living out the practical application application of justification. He's talking about sanctification, life and time. He's talking about holy living. He's talking about something here now in time. So again, justification is the instantaneous declaration of God, the judge of the universe, because what he has done for the believer uh, through Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, is lived out in the real world time in time, and it's a lifetime process by which the believer continually puts off sinful behavior and continually grows in holiness. And sanctification always follows justification because justification is not just a a declaration, a forensic declaration, it's a reality. Sanctification always follows justification. And again, it comes directly from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he has provided for us. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, means that if we're truly saved, we are going to look like him in time. We're going to live like him in time. We're going to look like we're saved. We're going to be different from the unsaved world around us in time. That's tremendous truth. Not asking you to do anything. Just telling you the reality. This is the way it is. This is what it looks like for a genuine believer. Theologian Abraham Kuyper, I think he's helpful when he tries to distinguish the difference between justification and sanctification. He says justification works for man. Sanctification works in man. Justification removes the guilt of sin. Sanctification removes the stain of sin. Justification imputes to us 
an extraneous or alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, and sanctification works a righteousness inherent as our own. We're granted it, and through the sanctification process, it works out in our life. Justification is at once completed, and sanctification increases gradually. Right? It's going to be imperfect. Sanctification is going to be imperfect. Again, justification, the, the hammer comes down for the judicial bar of the universe, declared forgiven, positively righteous in Christ. And now the process of transformation happens. Not perfection, but a little bit at a time, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Hopefully today you look a little more like Christ than you did yesterday. Hopefully over the last six months you look a little bit more like Christ than you did six months previously. Right? Hopefully in the future, six months from now, you'll continue to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of the Savior and you'll look more and more like Christ. Because that's the promise of God, is conforming us to the image of His Son. That's going to happen in time. In perfection, in glory, it'll be perfect. But in time, it's a process. So now if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him. Right? So if we're truly saved, we're going to look like Christ more and more in time. We're going to look like we're saved. And again... Again, the whole point of the entire passage is to refute the teaching that salvation by grace alone allows the person to live in unrepentant sin. It's a whole argument against that line of thinking. You know, again, I've told you this story. You know, little Johnny gets saved when he's three, and he gets baptized, and he grows up, and he rapes, pillages, and plunders the town, and murders everybody, and then Sally comes along and says, well, at least I know little Johnny's saved. I'm so thankful for that, because I remember he was three when he got saved. No. Little Johnny's not saved. Because people who are saved don't do that. They don't live in habitual patterns of sin. They've been set free from that. Again, that's the mistake in modern evangelicalism. It doesn't understand biblical truth that adds Jesus, just like another icon on the shelf, to already things in their lives that aren't working. So I'll just try something else. No. Jesus, Jesus actually saves people from their sin. Jesus actually happens to be Lord and Savior. Now, in my past, I've said that to people, and they've accused me of being a heretic. To my face. And they've written me letters. Just tell you what the Bible says. I told my son, all I try to do is speak truth. Right? It's not my word. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. This is freedom. Now, Lincoln didn't really emancipate the slaves. You're still slaves. Go back to work tomorrow. You say you're free by the signing of his pen. By an executive order in the most uh, executive sense. Granted you freedom. Granted you a new life. Go take it. That's what God has done for us in Christ. We shall live with him. Has to be. Certainly has to be. Speaking of the here and now. In the context of the whole thing. Right? The entire section is a discussion of what's presently true. About the believer who's died with Christ. We shall live with him has to be foremost speaking of life here in time in this present world. Now, we shall is really a future tense verb, but in the context, it's a statement of certainty. It's not a statement about time. It's a statement of certainty. We shall live with him. Therefore, again, verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and to death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might, so we too might walk in newness of life. So when are we to walk in this newness of life? Again, it's right here and right now. Our newness of life would not be reserved for us just for the future resurrection and glory when we're completely sanctified. That would contextually and practically make no sense. We got that. Does Jesus Christ change our life in time? That's what he's saying. Yes, he does, and he changes it for the positive. So again, Paul is refuting the suggestion that the doctrine of justification by faith alone leads to a life of sinfulness. He says, no way. May may it never be. It's an absolute lie. He says, the doctrine of justification by faith for someone who is truly saved leads to a change, a transformation of life, a lifestyle that is characterized by a walk in newness right here in time. If we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer mastered over him. So what does that mean, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead? Well, again, you'll remember back in verse 4, it says there that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And the fact that God raised Christ from the dead meant that God himself, God the Father, was fully satisfied with the work 
which his son had done on Calvary's cross. Again, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The resurrection is God's announcement and proclamation to the whole universe that Christ has completed the work which he had sent him to do. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an announcement, a proclamation to the whole universe by God that his son has completed the atonement, the work of atonement and redemption and salvation. Right? So knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Why? Because there's no need for him to die again. He did exactly what God the Father sent him to do. He did it once, forever, it's over. The resurrection proves it's finished. The resurrection proves that God has completely and entirely received his sacrifice in full. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death, he says, is no longer mastered over him. Now, if death is no longer mastered over him, it must mean that at some point death was mastered over him. By necessity, it must mean there was a time when death was mastered over Christ, when death had power over him. When was that? When was death master over Christ? Christ is the prince of life. When was death master over the prince of life? Well, Christ was the sinless one, the spotless lamb of God, the one who knew no sin. Death was master over the prince of life, over the person of Jesus Christ, when he became our substitute, when he became our sin bearer, when he bore our sins and his body on Calvary's cross. That was when death was master over him, when he took our sins upon himself, when he was under the penalty and the power of death because of our sin. Knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead is never to die again, death no longer is master over him because he's finished with that realm, he's finished with death. Death is never going to be master over him because he conquered death. He defeated sin. He paid the full penalty for sin. He was raised from the dead. God uh, counted his sacrifice as just and full payment. He, uh, he conquered death. He conquered death for us. He rose from the dead. And again, Romans 4 and 25. He was delivered over because of our transgression, transgressions, raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is direct proof that we are in Christ forgiven, positively righteous, justified, because, because God raised him up. Knowing this, that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer mastered over him. Again, it's a great truth for us. It's a great truth, reality about Christ, but it's a great truth for us because we have died and been raised with Christ, just as it says in verses 3 to 5. We too, death, we too, we shall never die again. The sin that made us subject to death is no longer master over us, no longer master over us, just as it is no longer master over him. It, sin's never going to come along and be our executioner because there's now no condemnation in Christ. We have new life in Christ. New life in time, new life in eternity. Now the climax of these verses here is verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So again, the death that he died, he died to sin <clears throat> once for all. Christ's death was designed to destroy sin, to make atonement for sin, to put away sin. And Christ died only once, once forever, never again to be repeated. His work's completed. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life during his time here on the earth. And he never had the same relationship to sin that we as humans do. He was never mastered by sin because he never committed the least of sin. He had a relationship with sin because he came to be our substitute, but sin never mastered him. He never committed the least of sin. Right, so then how could he have died to sin? Now, again, in the passage, it's obvious that in whatever way Christ died to sin, because that analogy of our union, believers also died to sin. So how could he have died to sin? One one writer offers this. He says, it seems that Paul means two things here in declaring that Christ died to sin. First, he said, he died to the penalty of sin. By taking upon himself the sins of the world, he met the sin's legal demand for all mankind who would trust in him. By their faith in him, empowered by his divine limitless grace, believers have forensically died to sin. Secondly, he said Christ died to the power of sin, forever breaking its power over those who belong to God through their faith in his Son. Paul assured even the immature, sin-prone believers in Corinth that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's good. The death that he died, he died to sin. He died to the penalty of sin, and Christ died to the power of sin. 
And because of our union with Christ, that's true of us. We are dead to the penalty of sin and dead to the power of sin. Tremendously encouraging. And again, a second crucial <clears throat> emphasis here in verse 10 is that Christ died to sin once for all. Again, he achieved that victory. Never needs to be repeated. It's a profound truth that the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews stresses over and over again. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10. Peter mentions it. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death, verse 10 again, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lived, he lives to God. So having defeated death, having risen from death, Christ our glorious King sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven to glorify him. He was dead, he is now alive forevermore. Amen? Dead, now alive forevermore. He lives in order to bring honor and glory to his Father. So too, as believers in Christ, united with Christ, why do we live? To bring glory to the Father. We have a new life. A new life in God, in Christ, forever devoted to God, forever devoted to Christ, to bring glory and honor to the Father, uh, just as the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did again because we're united with the Son. Now, beginning in verse 11, he addresses the logical conclusion of this great reality. He says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, I stop and remind you that Paul's not asking you to do anything. He's just telling you the truth over and over again because he wants us to be clear on doctrine. Listen, you cannot put into practice conduct, you cannot put into practice conduct or behavior of who you really are now in Christ unless you understand who you really are now in Christ. You got to understand that first. You can't go to step two until you got step one down. You got to understand the truth about who you are now in Christ. Now, once we are told the truth of who we are in Christ, we have to realize the truth. Our mind has to be engaged with the truth, our mind has to understand the truth before we can ever rightly apply truth into our lives. Right? That's why we go slowly here. We never want to come to a point of a quick application before we understand the proper exposition of the text or proper understanding of the exposition of doctrinal truth. We've got to know what it says before we have any type of uh, claim to what it might mean to me in my life. We've got to know what it says first. Now, in verse 11, those two words at the beginning are important. It says, even so. Or likewise, or in the same way, depending on the version you have. So Paul is saying, look, in essence, you must know fully and fully believe what I've just told you. I've just spent 10 verses telling you. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand what, I'm going to el- what else I'm going to say to you, right? You've got to understand the truth that you're dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus, or you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's not some kind of abstract concept for your finite minds to attempt to verify based on your experience you say no this is true this is divinely revealed truth this is divine revelation this is the truth divinely revealed to you it's foundational truth or it's axiomatic truth apart from which you can never hope to live a holy life that god demands and that god provides understand who you are in christ even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus now again in the context the apostles are trying to answer this objection of justification by faith alone you know, if grace abounds, then why would he just go out and sin the more? He says, it's impossible. It's unthinkable. It's absurd. For a Christian to live in sin, when the source of his life of holiness is found in his union with Christ. So again, the person who comes and professes a faith in Christ, but lives in a consistent life of unrepentant sin, gives positive evidence of the fact that he's not who he says he is. He's not a believer. Not a Christian person who lives a life marked in habitual patterns of sin. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So again, he says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. Right? Even so, because of your union with the person of Jesus Christ, because you're joined with him, what's true of him is truth you consider yourselves to be. The word consider, legizomai, it means to just count something or number something. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. The, uh, the New King James says, reckon yourselves. One, one translator says this, make a mental calculation of this. Make a mental calculation that you're dead in sin. Right? You're dead indeed to sin. Another one says, at this point, doctrine makes way for exhortation. What has been established, mainly that, or namely, that the believer are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ must become the abiding conviction of their heart and minds. The takeoff point for all of their thinking, planning, rejoicing, speaking, doing... 
they must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be, and their lives from day to day must show that they have not forgotten this. Another commentator says this, if the believer is to fully live out his new life in Christ, he must begin by knowing he is not what he used to be. Once believers know the foundational truths about his death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, and victory over the penalty and the power of sin, he's well on his way to victory in the Christian life. Doubts and fears become less and less because he knows he's dealing with a vanquished foe, a monarch who has been dethroned. The believer has been resurrected to new life and therefore has confidence to strip away his grave clothes and live victoriously. Again, that's a tremendous statement. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Right? Credit it to your account. Credit to your account. Reflect upon the fact. Reflect upon your position in Christ. Two things. Make a mental note. A mental bank account, if you will. You're dead to sin. And now you're alive to God in Christ. Now, look, those are profound truths that are going to take more time to consider than we have tonight as I see your, all of your little bobbing heads. So, so nobody hurts their neck full and final. I'll stop right there. All right? Our Father and our God, we thank you for this great truth. Again, the emancipation of the, of the believer in Christ, freed from the realm of sin and death, new creatures in Christ. What wonderful, glorious freeing truth and may we live according to those truths in our life and more and more so each and every day we praise you thank you for a great day of worship we love you and thank you for your kindness to us in christ's name amen